Hello, everybody. You guys have some fascinating questions and comments. So I have my work cut out for me here. Thank you so much for all of those awesome comments. <clears throat> and I'm just going to dive right in. So here I'm responding to your questions about view number two on the conquest, the giant purge, which is Michael S. Heiser's argument. So H-E-I-S-E-R. If you want to go down this rabbit hole further, he's written a book called The Unseen Realm, uh, which is the book that uh, hopefully I'll have time to read a little snippet of at the end here. As I answer your questions, I, my goal is to answer them the way Heiser would as best I can. So just a reminder, I don't necessarily agree with Heiser on everything. I'm just trying to represent his view the best I can. I do find some of the things that he says compelling at times, but I am with you in your concerns that uh, this is just really crazy sci-fi stuff. But um, here we go. So Michelle, you say, although this is a biblical debate and I've not pondered it much until now, I would agree that the opinion presented uh, in this article, a quote that stuck with me was most scholars strip the passages of their supernatural elements to make them palatable to a modern audience. I do not remember when I first heard about Genesis 6, but I do remember the discussion and opinions that followed. People reacted more with shock and disbelief that spiritual beings had offspring with humans. Yes, uh, many teachers did too here, Michelle. Unfortunately, we tend to want to interpret scripture in a way that makes us feel comfortable. At the end of the lesson, you mentioned that spiritual and human beings were rebelling and doing things their own way, and God would not allow this to continue. This is definitely a pattern we see throughout scripture. Do you think this act of bringing spiritual beings in a connection with humans was a mockery of Jesus coming as a human? Is there any connection? So, and then Shannon, you're, you're saying something similar. You say you agree it feels sci-fi, and you're wondering the same as Michelle in regards to whether the act of bringing spiritual beings in connection to humans was a mockery of Jesus coming as a human, if there's a connection. So, uh, yeah, let me just say I am with you <clears throat> that we need to be careful that our baggage doesn't lead us to miss what the biblical author is trying to say simply because it doesn't fit with our worldview or seem logical to us. I mean, our, our worldview holds, if you think about it, that a spiritual being— God made the world out of nothing, that another spiritual being, which I'll just call the devil, rebelled against God along with somehow other spiritual beings in some way, right? I mean, we use the term demons comfortably. Uh, and that we also believe that God entered history um, somehow uh, in the womb of a woman, yeah? Overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, Mary was. So believing that there are spiritual beings that could somehow create babies with a human woman doesn't seem like it's totally out of the realm of possibility here. Um, so we should avoid the impulse of uh, only holding interpretations that make us comfortable. I mean, if we do, we're never going to learn new ideas. We're just going to perpetuate our own paradigms. And I'm not about that. So here's what Heiser says. Why is it that Christians who would strenuously defend a belief 
in God or the virgin birth against charges that they are unscientific or rational. Don't hesitate to call out academic the academic SWAT team to explain away weird biblical passages, he says. Um, so to your question, is there a connection between spiritual beings and humans uh, that somehow mocking Jesus from coming as a human? I'm not sure that Jesus's arrival as a human uh, was understood um, back then. You know, the New Testament seems to point out the fact that the angels longed to look into these things that had been kept hidden regarding the events around Jesus. Peter says that in 1 Peter 1.12. So I'm nervous to assume that this was going to be understood as a mockery of something that was going to happen in the future. Um, I don't don't know if I see that. However, I'm totally fascinated by the parallels. Um, And you know, you might be onto something here. If Genesis 6 describes an unholy union between spiritual and human worlds coming together in a manner that's rebellious, then Jesus becoming human is the way God is bringing heaven and earth together his way. So I, I'm interested in, in that. Um, I mean, the second can be true without the first. God God does want to bring heaven and earth together. That That was always the intent. However, that relates to what's going on in Genesis 6, with the Nephilim and the giants and everything, that that can be up for grabs. So the Garden of Eden was uh, a small part of Eden, and God did want humans to extend that garden to the world because uh, there was still disorder everywhere. Um, I'd have you think about that a little bit. So lastly, the parallels with Genesis 3 seem to be more, more closely related with Genesis 6 and Genesis, I think it's 19, with the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. There you have men taking spiritual beings and wanting to rape them. And so this seems to be uh, an inversion of that happening from Genesis 6, uh, possibly. It could be. All right, Jonathan, you're saying you're coming from the opposite end uh, as Michelle. So you are a sci-fi fantasy geek slash cool person. That's right, you are Star Trek, man, next generation. I've always found the ideas discussed in this lesson to be fascinating. The only question I could think about during this lesson was how does the idea of spiritual beings having children with human women affect our view of angels slash spiritual beings? Isn't the main accepted view of these beings that they aren't flesh and blood like us and therefore wouldn't have what it takes to have children? Is that view selling short what spiritual beings are? My understanding has always been that spiritual beings are just that and never become human like Christ did, therefore could not have had children with humans. Yes, I hear you, Jonathan. Um, However, spiritual beings do show up embodied. People can grab hold of them. They eat food. Um, So it doesn't fit our categories, but we're just getting glimpses of what's going on here. Maybe symbolic or metaphorical explanations of spiritual beings. It's it's tough to to follow all this. Um, Also, there are many different kinds of spiritual beings talked about in scripture, and their power and abilities, I don't think, are fully exhausted or explained. Uh, One spiritual being in the Old Testament kills tons of people. Another claims to be able to make uh, a, a king make a decision that leads to destruction. That's in 2 Kings. This spiritual being says, ooh, send me God. I will make be a lying spirit in his mouth. So 
a lot of this is unknown. Uh, something I do find compelling here for Heiser's argument is the book of Job. So Job 6 uh, and 7 says the angels who did not stay in their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serving as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. That's interesting to me that uh, Jude, uh, this is Jesus's brother, right? Um, Judah is his name in, in Greek or in Hebrew, I believe. Um, he's connecting Genesis 6 with uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah story. So clearly Sodom and Gomorrah story, there's sexual morality there, men wanting to take angels. So that is interesting to me. So there you go. Lori Granite, here we go. She says, you felt like you were going through a biblical mythology class. <laughs> uh, the, the giant clans and the conquest article reminded you of your college mythology class. Um, so you feel like all along you've been taught that giants in the Bible were human, nine, ten feet tall, powerful. You're brought back to Sunday school session where you were left with the interpretation that Stonehenge was created by giants and there was a debate as to whether or not those giants were sent by God or Satan. Uh, now, that was clearly a long time ago, and you could be way off, you say, but what's, that's what stuck with you. So here's your questions. Did each giant clan have an appointed leader? What kind of leader was a giant? What was their purpose or mission? You say now you're under the impression that giants are the offspring of spiritual beings and humans. Again, that brings you back to mythology. So clearly that would be an unholy marriage, if a marriage at all. Doesn't the Bible mention Rephaim and Anakim after the flood? If so, did the giants survive the flood? How? And if so, who are their descendants? And is there a bloodline to trace? <laughs> okay, this is good stuff. Um, real quickly, just a couple comments. Um, <clears throat> I think Heiser would argue, yes, the Nephilim are indeed half divine, half human leaders that created the various nations uh, like Babylon. And the stuff going on in Genesis 10 really is interesting. And I think a decent case can be made for Nimrod, who is the one who is the founder of Babylon. So there's something there that we need to spend more time with. I think, I think Heiser's right that we just skip through some of this stuff as if it's just giving us background information. And we know that's not right. Genealogies are not just giving us fun facts so that we can win at trivial, biblical trivial pursuit, right? They're there for theological reasons, all right? This is not just a nice family tree. There's a purpose by the author of Genesis, whoever it might be, whether it was Moses or uh, whoever. Um, but God's Spirit has moved uh, a or many human authors to put together a work here in Genesis and genealogies and descriptions of people and the nations that they made are all a part of a, a point that is trying to be developed here. So what is that point? That's, that's what takes time to process. So what is their mission? It seems to be to oppose God's created order and authority. So yes, the Rephaim are mentioned later. Um, 
Heiser is actually going to argue that the sons of God make Nephilim numerous times. So you could also argue that the flood is not taken literally um, as a universal flood. And I, I can't remember if Heiser goes that way. He may. He actually may go that way, that the flood wasn't even universal. So they weren't all taken out. Um, I can't remember, though. So not sure about the bloodline question, but <laughs> uh, wait wait for this one here. Um, Heiser's going to make the argument that these Nephilim become shades when they die. And the, the Raphaim are talked about as dead kings in Isaiah. And those dead kings are, or shades or Raphaim, that's translated as impure spirits. In other words, demons. So Heiser's going to say, you know who Jesus was confronting when he cast demons out of people? It was the shades of the Nephilim. Yep. Okay. Liz. Liz, you say this sounds sci-fi to you. Yes. I should have had the Star Trek music start this episode. That would have been good. Uh, if uh, it were only part of the Bible. Uh, so I'm reminded of the big picture that God is in charge and Jesus loved and trusted his father. As you have reinforced in the past, evil exists and God is intervening all the time on behalf of the gospel. There is the age-old question of why did it happen in the first place? Why did the people at that time, how, how did the people at that time interpret this? If Middle Eastern mythology was similar, I might be trying too hard to make this a modern-day interpretation. Yep, I appreciate that, Liz. How would this have mattered to them? It's just a great reminder. Um, I, I really find it interesting, the, the argument that they would have found this as smack talk against Babylon and their other neighbors. So how literal do we take this? Is it reinforcing ideas that they had? Uh, oh, sorry, is it referencing ideas they had back then to make some claim? Is it affirming a reality of some literal historic account? And those are tough issues. Um, what, what would they have walked away with? How would this impact their view of their neighbors and their own origins as God's chosen people. So I think that's the way we got to go. How would Israel have perceived this? And maybe thinking about it as an origin story is important. I'll actually at the end here read a section from Heiser, Liz, that I think might answer that a bit more. All right, Beth Ann, you say you commented on giants before, um, and you're interested in the idea of the giants being offspring of spiritual beings and humans. So were the humans tricked? Did the human women know they were spiritual beings? Um, perhaps they manifested men. And so how would the humans know? So, and did I mention where the giants went when they were driven out? You said giant tombs were found all over the world, including North America. And then you wonder about specific traits, um, abnormally tall, double rows of teeth. Uh, could those be features that weren't fully human? So. Not sure, Beth Ann, about some of those. Um, <clears throat> but it, driving out the giants seems to be a really big deal in the Old Testament. David really seems to be focused on it. In fact, the Davidic story uh, starts with killing a giant. And he is God's anointed one. He is God's 
Messiah King, yeah? And Jesus picks up that and adds to that profile as the anointed Messiah King who slays evil forces. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, so I, I don't know uh, where, where to go with that. Um, in terms of the, the women's culpability, um, I'm, I'm nervous to say how complicit the women were in it. I just don't know. I mean, Genesis 6 says God's spirit can't remain with humanity because humanity is evil. And it says this after talking about the sons of God and daughters of men. So um, it's possible that they knew what they were doing and that this is a rebellion account. The parallels with Genesis 3, uh, both Adam and Eve were found guilty. So that would follow that the daughters of men are guilty with the sons of God. Um, but um, the origin stories of Babylon is just intriguing to me. Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh speaks of, of Gilgamesh being a giant from Uruk, R-U-R-U-K, which, guys, in Hebrew is Erek, E-R-E-C-K, mentioned in Genesis 10. And the, the uh, founder is Nimrod. It's right there. So that's interesting. And then Genesis 11, everybody's in Shinar, which is where Babylon is made. And God takes down Babylon there. So, oh man, lots to think about. All right, uh, Joan Stottle, fantastic question. Please comment on the belief that although giants died with the rest of humanity during the flood, some of the genes to produce giants survived through the wife of Ham, one of Noah's sons. Is this biblical? Hebrews 13.2 exhorts us to be kind to strangers because we might have entertained angels. Does this support the belief? Angels continue to materialize today. Uh, I, I think it does, that second question. I think we can say, yep, seems like this is saying spiritual beings show up embodied. And sometimes it happens we don't even know it. But um, in terms of Ham's wife having the genes to produce giants, um, I, I think... We've answered that a little bit with the flood. And I think if, I, I hope I'm, I'm gonna address what you're concerned with, but if, if it's this curse on Ham and Canaan um, that, that you're thinking about, Heiser is gonna argue that the, to uncover his father's nakedness is to actually Ham had sex with his mom, which if you look at Leviticus 18, the language of uncovering your father's nakedness is an idiom for that. So Ham's wanting to usurp authority uh, from Noah by sleeping with, with his, his Noah's wife, his own mother. Um, so, I mean, here we go. We got just more crazy sex stories in, in Genesis, but they all seem to kind of connect together. So, Ham is wanting to um, propagate his seed with Noah's wife and, and ruin his father. And so it seems like a, a boastful thing that he's doing. Um, so, uh, and Canaan is the curse, cursed because of it. Um, so he cursed Canaan and told him he would serve his brothers rather than the other way around, which happens all throughout Genesis. So the... Uh, the point here, you have to recognize, 
uh, Heiser is going to argue that this interpretation works on the assumption that the narrator skips some time between a couple of verses, the time needed for a baby to be born. And when Noah found out that Ham had impregnated his wife, he cursed the resulting child. So there you go. Uh, Nora, wrapping it up here, you said this whole subject is fascinating. Um, and you second what Beth Ann feels like it's sci-fi. Um, it's, and you say, it's not that you don't think it's true necessarily, but it does feel convenient explaining the reason for all the human destruction and annihilation because they were descended from people who aren't really people. So what are my thoughts? It seems just, it makes it easier to swallow. Yeah, I would agree. That's too simplistic. Um, and Heiser would argue there are multiple fall accounts uh, and that human beings and spiritual beings both have rebelled against God. So you end up with uh, a spiritual being, God the Son, becoming a human and dealing with both realms on the cross. So God wants to bring the spiritual and the physical worlds together again. Let me just wrap up. I've gone a little over here, but just I'll just read a little snippet from Heiser's book. So this is on page 102. Genesis 1, 6, 1 through 4 is a polemic. It is a literary and theological effort to undermine the credibility of Mesopotamian gods and other aspects of that culture's worldview. Biblical writers do this frequently. The strategy often involves borrowing lines and motifs from the literature of the target civilization to articulate correct theology about Yahweh and to show contempt for the other gods. Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is a case study in this technique. <clears throat> he will go on to say that um, the biblical writers took what the Babylonians thought was proof of their own divine heritage and told a different story. Yes, there were giants, renowned men for both before and after the flood, but those offspring and their knowledge was not of the true God. They were the result of a rebellion against Yahweh by lesser divine beings. Genesis 6, along with 2 Peter and Jude, portrays Babylon's boast as a horrific transgression, and even worse, the catalyst that spread corruption throughout humankind. Genesis 6, verse 5 is essentially a summary of the effect of the transgression. It gets a little space. It's a restrained account. Um, yeah, there you go, people. Uh, wow. Thanks so much for all your good questions. Hopefully what I shared was helpful. And next lesson will be uh, view number three. See ya.